Hello, I'm Sandra Gilman, chairman of the American Theatre Wing, with our board president, Doug Leeds. Welcome to today's program, where we will be exploring the American musical concert series, Encores. We'll be back later on to tell you more about the work of the American Theatre Wing. But right now, please join us for another edition of Working in the Theatre. Since 1994, the New York City Center Encores series has celebrated a wide spectrum of works from the repertoire of the American musical theater. They are performed for a limited number of performances at City Center and in concert format. So far, over 40 different musicals have been included, and many of America's most important composers and lyricists have been represented, including Cole Porter, The Gershwins, Rodgers and Hart, Irving Berlin, Kurt Weill, Kander and Ebb, Harold Arlen, Comden and Green, and many, many more. Each year, Encores presents three lesser-known, often obscure works, giving them a chance to be heard with full orchestra and in their original orchestrations, as close to their original intentions as possible. I'm Ted Chapin for the American Theatre Wing. Welcome to Working in the Theatre. We are here today with four of the individuals responsible for the many accomplishments in the Encores series. Please welcome Judith Dakin, Executive Director of City Center from 1992 to 2003. Jack Viertel, the current Artistic Director who has served in that capacity since the 2001 season. Rob Fisher, Original Musical Director from 1994 to 2005, and David Ives, who over the years has adapted the book for 18 of the musicals in the Encore series. So now before we begin full disclosure, I have in fact, I know all these people and I have been involved in Encores as the chairman of the advisory committee since the very beginning. So that, with, with that full disclosure started, I want to start with Judith Dakin. What was the first thought that you had that led to the Encore series? It goes back to the Brooklyn Academy of Music, Ted, when as you know we did a tribute to George Gershwin and uh, it happens that Rob Fisher was part of that team and we did insanely enough uh, of the icing and let him eat cake all in one evening it was a very long evening um, Jack Guilford played throttle bottom and he was wonderful and it was terrific people like Larry Kurt and Maureen McGovern and Jack Dabda was wonderful it awed me at the time that people would sit there wrapped uh, for two musicals lumped together with an intermission. Maybe we had two intermissions, I can't remember. It was and just one. It was just one, <laughs> Rob would remember. And Harvey Lichtenstein, who was the head of the Brooklyn Academy at that time, thought, okay, it was good. We, had, we did those two shows. We also did a gala tribute to Gershwin. But he wasn't interested in continuing that as a series. And I thought to myself, wow, there's clearly a hunger among New York audiences, theater audiences, to hear these older shows, which had brilliant scores, in the case of Let Him Eat Cake and, and uh, of the I Sing, good books too. I was at, my first question to Ted was, is anybody doing this? And my real interest was in the sound of the score as those 
composer lyricists originally intended it. Is anybody doing that? I knew about lyrics and lyricists over at the Y. And Ted said, no, and it's very expensive. And then we proceeded to make two lists on a paper napkin. The first list was all the people in the business that we didn't want to have involved with this project. People who knew better than anybody else, I believe, was the criteria on that right. list. And the second list was all the people we really would like to have involved in the project. And on the top, the top name on that list was Rob Fisher, because I had worked with Rob and Ted had worked with Rob. So that's how it started. And Rob, when you were first tapped, what, what, was your, what were your first thoughts about this idea? Well, that it was about time that it was tried again. You and I'm, I, th I, I, don't, I think we met just prior to it, but it was Bill Tyne's New Amsterdam Theatre Company, which was attempting to do it on a smaller scale and trying to do it for no money mm -hmm. and with, with no rehearsal but at Town Hall, but still trying to present these, find a way to present these scores. So we'd had some experience there, and I'd had that experience at BAM, and then I'd done some musicals in concert with piano only for the Smithsonian. And so I was, in my head were ways that I thought we maybe could do this. And to have somebody was determined to have it sound like it sounded when it began, in terms of a full orchestra doing the full or original orchestration as close as it could be for opening night, and a full chorus, because when the, for the, these old shows, there was a chorus devoted to singing yeah. that didn't have to do the dancing. And the singing was big and beautiful. And that became our mantra. What did it sound like on opening night and how close can we get? Right. And, and to, to find which shows were appropriate, I, I mean, we did form this, this committee and one of the first people on the committee was Jack, who, who, who is many things including a dramaturg and, and a critic actually in a previous incarnation, dare I say it? Yes, I, I, I've, I was on the dark side for many years. <laughs> but um, you, you were in on those early meetings and, and when we talked about which would be the perfect shows. What yeah, you I think you called that? me principally not for dramaturgy or drama criticism, but because the committee, which had I guess met once or twice, felt that somebody who would, was actually a producer needed to come in and say, here's how you produce a show. And I had some experience at that because I've worked at DuJampson at that point for three or four years and um, came in and, and my basic reaction to the idea was, well, this will never happen. I mean, I don't know how it can happen because as a Broadway producer, all you hear is Broadway producers sitting around, you know, pulling their hair out about how many musicians they have to use. And they don't want to use that many musicians. And can't we do it with, you know, some keyboards and some synths? and um, so the idea of actually flying in the face of that was terrifically appealing, but to me, completely unrealistic. And I didn't really quite believe it would happen, but I so loved, frankly, the possibility of actually sitting through one of these things that uh, I couldn't, you know, avoid getting on board. What did anybody th think when, we, when the program started? You said the mantra. What, what was the clearest mantra from, from, from the beginning? The sound, I think. I mean, that's what drove us. And it's, so it was score-driven, rather, right. and, and often, as, as Judith started to say, these scores, many of them were magnificent, but housed in a book that was no longer held enough interest for a real run of a show. Um, and, and they also were long. They, they needed, we can get to this I guy gonna say, I was going to say, you're giving me a very good introduction <laughs> yeah, to David, to bring uh, David in. The, 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 to do the entire book, 
pointless. Uh, <laughs> well, David, your, your first encore was Out of This World, I believe. Cole Porter. World. And who did the book for that, the original? I wish I knew. <laughs> there were, <laughs> how many books book? did you start Six. with? Uh, uh, Six. Six. Oh, who did the first, who wrote the book for Out of This World? Herb Fields? Her, uh, Spiewak's. Herb Fields. So, somebody. No, somebody. Somebody know. did the book. That there tells you something about the role of the book writer in <laughs> a Broadway musical. <laughs> I have no idea who wrote, but wrote it, were, and frankly, I don't care. <laughs> But um, there were six different versions. No, there were not six. Actually, uh, Walter Bobby called me up and said, we're doing this thing called Encores at City Center, um, and we have a project to do, we want to do Out of This World, which was a Cole Porter musical, a failed Cole Porter musical from f 1950 or 51. And um, he said, the problem is this. We have three versions of the script. We don't think any of them was the production script. One seemed to be a stage mid-rehearsal mid script. One seemed to have been written after the, the show happened. But in any case, there was no production script, as often happened, because these things were not kept. And um, so he said, would you be willing to take the, those three books and somehow find a way to, to make a usable script for Out of This World in a concert version, but also retaining a couple of songs that were cut out of town? Because George Abbott actually cut um, from this moment on. From this moment on in Boston. Or, uh, and so I had to find a way to include that. And so I, I have to say that I was almost completely ignorant about musicals at the time. I had seen probably six in my life, two of which were Sweeney Todd. And, um, <laughs> and so I knew I was a babe in the woods. To me, it was just this wonderful opportunity to, to create a book, and so I went to see Call Me Madam to get a sense of what Encores did, which was absolutely delightful. And so I remember sitting down on a Sunday morning with the three scripts in front of me and starting to just have some fun with them. And, and that has been more or less what I've had to do with the older books especially. I mean, the, a book like, for example, On a Clear Day You Can See Forever, which, is, which, which we have a, a production script for, is simply a matter of editing down. But I think that my, uh, I think of my job as sort of taking one of those sieves that one of those gold rush miners use, throwing the script and shaking it a few times, and whatever's still there I type up. And um, so that's kind of how I began was, was that. And I have, it has since been this extraordinary education because needless to say, I've learned fast about musicals and worked on, have worked on 18 of them uh, at Encores by now. If you see me dancing with anybody else, then complain. I want to wait. I want to complain now. Well, you can complain after I complain about sitting here in a section that time forgot. <laughs> It was understood by all of us at the beginning that we were not doing South Pacific or Sweeney Todd or anything that got done a lot. And it was a way of bringing back properties that were either not going to ever see a revival, or if they did, it was going to be in a small town in Iowa. So, you know, that was the other, the, the subtext to the score. And part of that was examining the major writers and the shows of theirs we didn't know because one of our potential titles was Flops by Tops. Right. <laughs> Before we got to the name Encores. Right. Um, but to look at the Gershwins and to look at Cole Porter and not go immediately to the shows that do get done, but what, if, what else did they write? Right. First season we did Rodgers and Hammerstein's Allegro, which is a gorgeous, gorgeous score. Beautiful. But a difficult show to produce. It was the only Encores we've done in the 40-some we've done where we had the orchestra in the pit. And it became immediately evident that that signaled to the audience that it was no longer a concert, that it was a full production. 
And so, and yet it wasn't. And, and it wasn't a full production. It and and it had only been rehearsed. They were only rehearsed for a week and a half, basically, because the the entire yeah. well, the entire right. gig yeah. is a two week gig for everybody. We never could convince Howard Squadron that we could get more performances. <laughs> we, Kathleen and I made a, a, a board with little pieces, which were each rehearsal and tried to prove to him that when you start rehearsal on that Monday morning and you do the read-through, the earliest you are going to get to some kind of performance level is Wednesday. And factually, in the first year, we only did four performances of each, which, in hindsight, because Patti LuPone did Pal Joey and her chops were affected by some nodes or something she was having trouble with, and Rob said afterward if we'd done five performances of that, she wouldn't have made the last two. So things and, and evolved. Andrew Martin had trouble that. I mean, that's right. And Tyne also. They Tyne. all the, those big shows where one person carries the show. Yes, it's, it's a tough. Well, those audiences don't realize, of course, that they're <laughs> actually singing them. The, the audiences are seeing them for five performances, but they're singing a Wednesday afternoon a rehearsal, yeah. a Wednesday evening rehearsal. Two texts on Tuesday. Singing all day Tuesday. Yeah. You know, so they're real. It's not an eight performance week for them. It's like a ten performance yeah. week, and that's very very hard. But the other thing, the, the other thing we learned just back to that, yeah. that point, that was the only we toyed with having narration yes. rather than having script, and that poor show had both. It had <laughs> script and it acted out and narrated, and narrated by Christopher Reeve. May I quickly add? For a couple of performances, yeah, and right. then and then he le left. He I think flew he, away, he yes. thought it was a benefit, <laughs> <laughs> so he left. And then it came in Jamie Hammerstein and and Mary Rogers, who narrated it for the. But that was not a good idea. So Mickey and Judy had a little trouble getting yes, the did. show up in the barn. Well, they're it was supposed the first to. year. I mean, you know, it was the, the first year. Yeah. The, the, the movie's got to be ten reels long. It, you can't get it right exactly <laughs> the first time. And in Fiorello. We we did we decided early on that we'd try to do one thing choreographically, even though that was a little bit sliding away from the mission of hearing the score. But because the dance music was so great and the arrangements were so great, we maybe we'd try to do one, even though the rehearsal time was very small. So for Fiorello, there were a couple of moments where the cast kind of moved off to the side, exposing, revealing the orchestra. This was the very first show, and the orchestra just played, and the cast sat there and, well, things evolved. But that's how we started. So it was about the music. Well, Jack, talk about the evolution, because I know that, that, that there have been people who say, you know, that, that they've become more than concerts. They've become something else, and there's, there seem to scenery and costumes and like that. It's well, evolved I, from what Judith just said. Yes, I mean, this, this evolution, much of it happened before I came on board as artistic director, although I think it's inevitably continued on its way. Um, you know, Fiorello was very much about the music, and I remember actually, with all of my cynicism about the about the whole process and whether it could ever get off the ground, vividly sitting in the in the, uh, the auditorium, hearing the beginning of the overture of Fiorello, mm -hmm. and thinking, right after the first few chords, oh my lord, where has this been? You know, I haven't heard something like this since Fiorello. I mean, music just on Broadway just doesn't sound like this anymore, and um, that's sort of when I knew that it could work, but. Fiorello was very, very much a concert, I think. And little by little, things began to be added, I think because the audience was hungry for it and the artists, frankly, were hungry for it. Choreographers wanted to come and show off their stuff and felt that they could do the Sadie Hawkins Ballet and Lil Abner even in the, in the course of a 10-day rehearsal period, and they wanted to. And it would be more fun for the audience to watch the dance than just to watch the orchestra. They could watch the orchestra and the dance. And Certain shows needed a certain kind of physical reality that other shows don't need. I mean, I remember when we did Carnival, 
uh, Kathleen Marshall saying when I was sort of complaining about the size of the the budget for costumes and props and things. Well, this is a show about a puppet stage, and we're going to have puppets. And if there are puppets, there's a puppeteer operating the puppets. You can't. Everybody else can't just be standing around in, in cocktail wear, you know, singing. We have to. Do, we have to deliver the magic that's in the show in whatever way we can. And so, sort of, you know, each according to its needs, we've proceeded from there. And I think sometimes we've probably dressed them up too much. I can't actually think of any example where we dress them up too little. Usually, when we've done and little, part of that little is has when been better. Once you, because the show needs that, and you add a certain amount for that show. When you get to the next show, you start there and add, what add that something show else needs. on top. Yeah, and and it's. It does feel more uh, artist-driven than audience-driven to me, but the audience is perfectly happy to see all that stuff. Yeah. But as in the, in Out of This World, as as I recall, the only costume was the was the gold leaf, the, the gold bay leaves that Peter. that Peter Scolari wore as Mercury, and that was it. And the rest. Everybody was, else was in cocktail. Everybody dresses. else was in cost, cocktail dress. Yeah. Right. So. We did have a swing for Andrea. To that, make was her big, that was a big. That was a big. She came in. Oh, she flew in over the yeah, audience. Yeah. So it's like one one effect. One gesture. One gesture, yes. yes. All does, the budget went to the swing. What, what does anybody feel if, if th in this season there was a show done as bare bones as they were done in the first season? Do you mean would people accept that? Yes. If the score's good enough. <laughs> that's a good answer. So I think that that's, I think that that's possible. I, I, but it's true. It does have to be a, an overwhelming score at this point because people have come to expect Ex expectations yeah. have changed. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Rob, on, on the subject of scores, I, I know that there's been a lot of a lot written and a lot talked about the restoration of scores, the um, you know where these scores come from and how much work has to go into preparing them. And I think that a lot of people just assume that when a show is done on, on Broadway, whether it's a success or, or not, that these scores exist somewhere beautifully, and you just open the drawer and pull them out and put them on the stands and hire an orchestra. Educate us. Well, it's, uh, that's uh, how long is this program? <laughs> um, the in those glory days, twenties, thirties, especially, and then somewhat in the forties. But in the twenties and thirties, they didn't. They were writing shows like somebody might write a TV show now and just do it. And they've moved on. And when the show would close, there was in those days there weren't Xerox machines and ways to easily duplicate everything. So there was maybe one set of full scores an orchestrator had done, maybe a set, but usually just one. That might have ended up with the person who copied it into the orchestra parts. It may have gone back to the composer or to the orchestrator. It could be anywhere. The orchestra parts, the one set of orchestra parts, are in the pit. And when the show closes, maybe somebody goes down to the pit and gathers all that music up. And if it is somebody, it's probably from the producer's office. It's probably not the composer down there picking up. And that box of stuff could go anywhere. So Indeed. I don't think we've uh, found all the boxes yet that could be out there. What's the worst case so far? The worst? Or a good story, anyway, about oh, good scores. We have lots of good stories. Yeah, there are lots of good stories. I, th I suppose one of, one of the favorites <laughs> is uh, the music for um, Sweet Adeline, which was gorgeous, gorgeous score by Jerome Kern after Showboat, soon after Showboat. And it hadn't been produced since 1930, is it 30, I think? Except for one production at the St. Louis Muni in the 30s where the, it's performed outdoors. And so that the one set of parts that had been in the pit on Broadway, 
made a trip to St. Louis in the 30s, and then were back in a box um, buried at, I can't remember where they were buried at, maybe at Tams Whitmark. But when we opened the parts, there were dead mosquitoes from the 1930s <laughs> that had been slapped at by the musicians because it was outdoors and uh, I guess and, a bad season. And year. our band then during the read-through was hysterical because you couldn't tell what was a dead mosquito part and what was a note. <laughs> There's, there's, a, there's an equivalent in scripts, too, that I, that I found so fascinating when I was working on DuBerry Was a Lady, oh, which yeah. was a... Oh, yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, <laughs> less of that later. Um, <laughs> um, um, in DuBerry Was a Lady, uh, DuBerry Was a Lady was a, a failed, another failed Cole Porter show from 38, I think, and it was originally written as a star vehicle for Ethel Merman and Burt Lahr. And um, these days, one doesn't do this, but because it was written for Burt Lahr, you would go through the script and then there would be a stage direction that said, he does the sneezing routine. And then a few pages later, he does the snuff box routine. And a few pages later, he does the, the brushing routine. And the and bedroom so, sketch. And the bedroom sketch. And so that's all that it says. And so you have to come up with something that can go in there. But it was just—it was up to him to do whatever he wanted at that moment. He also so, used his vaudeville routines yes, in these shows. They were written as That's vehicles. why the people went to those Absolutely. shows was to see him do the sneezing routine. And so, there's—we have to—we have to do a kind of reconstruction. A kind, there's a kind of literary ventriloquism that goes into, into patching together, especially these old shows that, that are often missing pieces or missing pages. And or, they're from the time when there wasn't. A, people weren't out there with their hidden DVD recorders and, <laughs> and there is, there's no record. There's now from, you know, starting in the 50s, there at least duplication of materials became easier, du recordings became more common, and then eventually video became more common, but there's, no. there, there's... But, but you, you also bring up a point about performers, because a lot of these shows, as you said, Bert Lahr, they're, they're geared around personalities. And Jay Binder has been the tireless casting director of Encores from, from day one. Um, how, how has he gotten people? How have, have people been attracted to Encores? Walter Bobby keeps saying it's summer stock with the, the A team, team, right? Because right. it you is want right to do in the, the middle time of the daily story. Well, that I was think a turning that point. was the turning point, and that was the second, third show. First show of the second season. First show of the second season. Um, we thought Tyne would be. Tyne had done a version of Call Me Madam in London, I think. Or BBC, yep. uh, a radio version. Yep. So she was familiar with the material. And the problem we were running into with agents and actors, too, is that they really didn't understand what we were doing. And this is Tyne Daly you're talking about. Yeah, Tyne Daly. But, you know, in, in the case of trying to get anybody of name to come and join us, it was very hard. What, they're doing them in concert? How much rehearsal? Oh, my God. Jonathan Hadari convinced Tyne, once Jay had made the offer, that if she came, she'd have a good time, and she'd be treated well, and it would be fun. And he had done Allegro, Allegro the year before, wonderfully. He was wonderful in it. And so she, we talked to Michael Hardig, and endlessly, and finally she agreed she'd come. And it was like an imprimatur. Once Tyne Daly had done an encore, everybody fell in behind her. It, it, that, that made the difference. If you're feeling presidential, you can make it, yes indeed. There are just three things essential. Let me tell you all you need is an ounce of wisdom and a pound of gold. And the hostess with the most.
there's a kind of beautiful symmetry, I think, between the way Encores puts on a show and the way these shows were put on originally. Because musical theater was a throwaway art in those days. The, the, the scores were literally thrown away. If the, if the show didn't work, you moved on to the next show. And people were assembled for shows very quickly. And um, musical theater was not $15 million. It was a night out, you know. And so producers were more willing to just kind of put something up and see if it, see if it ran and get right. a star and see if it goes. And so one of the joys of encores is, the, is the, the rehearsal process. It's the most fun I have all year because you start on Monday. On Friday, you have the stumble through. On Saturday, you're on stage. On Monday, you meet the orchestra. And so there is a kind of, of, of feeling of, of the prospect of imminent production concentrates the mind wonderfully, you know, <laughs> to paraphrase Dr. Johnson. And so we are, in a sense, recreating just that burst of energy with which these shows were originally put up. And I think that's part of the hunger that's being satisfied, yeah. and I feel it on both sides of the stage, because I think the rehearsal process puts you in a time machine to another yeah. way of doing things, and sitting in the audience puts you in a different kind of time machine, which is not just watching an old show. It's making you the audience at an old show, and therefore an audience from another time. And it, it, it's, there's a real alchemy that goes on when the shows are good, which is, audiences actually become the audience from another time. They accept things that they would never accept in a new musical today or a new theater piece today. They accept the politics of another time. They accept the sexual politics of another time. They don't ask you to be 50 years ahead of where the show was. Right. They want to go back to where the show was, and they go. They go as surely as if they're getting in a physical time well, That's machine. an important point, because we do, we, we do not update the shows. Although I must say there is one aspect of these old shows that, that I am still amazed by, which is when you say we do not, you know, we, we take you back to the, to the, to the um, mores of another day, and, and yet I must say that one of my jobs as an adapter is cutting out the wife-beating jokes. There are so <laughs> many wife-beating jokes in these. There's always one. You know, the boys from Syracuse yeah. is like... Is the, That's a show know, about wife-beating. <laughs> yes, it would, never get, it would never get past anybody no. these days, and so that part of my job is always to find it and take it out. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's not, they're not hard to locate. The sound <laughs> of the slap resounding through the pages. I want to ask Jack, you, you, you talk about the, the rules between audience and, and, and on stage. Talk about the scripts in hand, because... They, they, they well, you know, from the very beginning, we've had people carrying scripts, and actually the actors have become more resistant to carrying scripts over the years as the, as the presentation has gotten more elaborate. But I think one of the things that happens, it's like having the orchestra on stage. One of the things that happens when uh, actors walk out in, at the beginning of a show with a black notebook in their hands is the audience relaxes and says, oh, it's not a production, it's only a concert. Then if we give them a little more than a concert, they quickly forget that the scripts are there at all. I mean, I, I, even I forget that the scripts are there. They're, they're, they're part of the landscape in some way that becomes as invisible as, you know, lawns in a suburban neighborhood. They're just, they're, they're there and they, they allow us to do what we need to do, and then they never get in the way, strangely enough. I never forget that the scripts are there. <laughs> <laughs> now, at, at, at this point, we're going to take a little break and hear more about the work of the American Theatre Wing. The American Theatre Wing has played a vital role in New York's theatrical life for more than 60 years. We stand for excellence, and we support education in the theatre. Best known for creating the Tony Award, our work reaches beyond Broadway and New York. 
These seminar programs, which are supported by the Annenberg Foundation and the Dorothy Strelson Foundation, are an unequal form for discussions with today's most creative artists. Downstage Center's in-depth interviews are heard on XM Satellite Radio. Our grant and scholarship programs support New York theater companies and theater students. And since we began, we have given away more than two and a half million dollars. Our theater intern group helps young people who are just starting in their careers build a professional network. And Springboard NYC is a two-week boot camp for aspiring actors from colleges across the country. All of the American Theater Wing's educational and media programs are available for free, on demand, from our website, americantheaterwing.org. Now, let's return to the seminar. We're watching a clip from the musical Chicago, which began as part of the 1996 encore season. It moved to Broadway that same year, won six Tony Awards, and went on to play in London, Argentina, Mexico, Australia, Sweden, among others, and inspired the 2002 feature film that won six Oscars. Before we talk specifically about Chicago, I wanted to ask who chooses, we're talking about a lot of different shows, good and maybe not so good, but who chooses? Jack, as artistic director, is that your choice? Well, it's, it's been a very kind of collective uh, choice. Rob and I used to sit when he was the music director and occasionally play through a score, but also talk about scores, and he would go off and listen and come back, and we would figure out what to do little by little with the help of the advisory committee, which always meets in the spring after after the last encore show. I remember one season Rob saying to me, I think it's time to do a big old operetta. And I said to him very quickly, geez, I hate operetta. <laughs> and he very cleverly said to me, which operettas do you hate? <laughs> which completely diffused the argument, and then I had to say to him, you know, I've never actually seen an operetta. <laughs> and uh, so I started listening to them, and that's how we ended up doing The New Moon. But you know, it, it's been, everyone has a list, everyone has shows they want to do, and everyone has shows they want to see, and everyone has shows they don't particularly want to do or see. So it, we go back and forth, and the difficulty is not really picking shows. Picking shows is easy. There's lots and lots of shows we want to see. The difficulty is picking a season that has enough variety, whether the variety is in the eras in which the show was done or the type of show that it is um, that sort of has something for everyone that sort of is uh, celebrates I always feel we need to celebrate at least one show that really almost never gets done one of Rob's great questions always was does this show need encores and uh, but sometimes you have to protect that show by doing another show that the audience is going to be more eager to mm -hmm. see and you know there are financial considerations you do have to have people in the seats and so it's a very complicated and incredibly inexact process. Um, but sometime along, you know, around the end of the summer, we do have to say, well, these are the three shows we're doing, and there'll always be another year. I wanted to add a, a, a couple of things to that while I'm thinking of them. That um, the advisory committee is great for taking the temperature of which shows people are passionate about seeing or not. And then it's with all three of the artistic directors that I worked with, um, it was a matter of finding the ones we were the most passionate about 
And then in terms of restoration, my rule was we can have one that needs a gigantic restoration, one that needs sort of medium-ish pulling back together, and one that's pretty close to being playable right now today. Comes right out of a box and you can play that, So that's another thing when we're putting together a season, besides getting a spread so that there's diversity within the season, then some through connection between the season, and then my words always are don't be doing an artistic director, don't do a show you feel like you're supposed to do, because if you don't have the passion to see all three of them on stage, you're going to be not enough help next spring. <laughs> right. And I've, what you I, outlined I've there are financial. I've learned this uh, much to my chagrin and probably <laughs> caused a lot of chagrin for other people. I won't name titles. But, but, so, but Rob's format there in terms of the type of show and how much really his his point has to do with the intensity of the job of the staff and prepping. But it does have financial Financial implications. considerations yeah. too because if you do a major restoration like St. Louis Woman, you're talking in excess of $100,000 probably to do that. And that was a big deal. So we couldn't, clearly couldn't do. That's $100,000 more than a non-restored show of, yeah, on top, top of, of the yeah. producing costs. And sometimes you get surprised. I mean, we were stunned, I think, when we, we decided to do Bye Bye Birdie for a variety of reasons. And a lot of people felt, oh, that's too well-known a show, and you really shouldn't be doing that kind of a show. When we sat down to play the original orchestration of Bye Bye Birdie, it needed a lot of work. It had not really been heard the way it was written since 1960 when it played the Martin Beck Theater. Some shows immediately become a, there was a tour that reduced the original orchestration and that's what exists now. And to get back from the touring version to the original version sometimes is more complicated than we anticipated. And a little but, more expensive. But on the, on the subject of, of um, the new moon and choosing shows, two, two quick Adolph Green stories, because <clears throat> I told Adolph Green that we were doing the new moon, and he saw the new moon in 1928. <laughs> <coughs> and he said to me, oh, well, the new moon is, is it's a Sigmund Romberg show. He said, it's not even Sig Sigmund Romberg's best. And I said, well, what is Sigmund Romberg's best? And he said, Rudolf Frimmel. <laughs> <laughs> and the other, the other Adolph Green story is that, um, I told him that I was going to be adapting Do Re Mi for encores, and this was his response: No, don't. <laughs> and that <laughs> was actually, his show. That was his show. Right. He wrote it, but it actually turned—he turned out to be so delighted by it, and yeah. the show itself turned out to be wonderful. Partly because it was also that show was written as a vehicle for, for Phil Silvers, and we had Nathan Lane, who is the Phil Silvers of our time. I hope Nathan, you don't mind my saying that, but. Um, um, in any case, it ended up being a delight, but his own, his own first response was, no, don't adapt my show. So taking from that, is, it, uh, are, are, is everybody comfortable enough to perhaps venture a title that you think might have been better off staying in that vault? Dakin. Dewberry was a lady. Yeah. I'm sorry, it just was painful. And poor Bobby Morrison, Faith Prince. But I, I, I will take the blame for that. I you did can't. not do I did not do a good adaptation of that show. It was Walter and I together and I have to say that we fell too much in love with with what we were doing. There was too much book. I think that was my second the second show I adapted and I I will take the blame for that. It really it is a much better show than that and and so it was the book. As always, it's the book. Right. So we should give it another try. Right. I, uh, it really would be better. That's, that's how I feel about them. I wouldn't say there are shows, I would, certainly wouldn't name any titles that I think we shouldn't have done. There are a few I wouldn't mind getting back and, yeah, and yeah, having have it a second chance. time. Have yeah. shot and partly them. because of what we learned from doing them the first time. Yeah. Are you, yes. Rob, are you willing to, to, to throw a title that maybe should never have been done? No, I just think 
and I'm not even going to throw you the titles that we could have done better. Mm -hmm. there, we, there were some low and Casting didn't quite come together. The staff didn't quite come together, meaning director, choreographer, or, you know, there's just the stars didn't align. The stars have aligned a lot of times. Many more okay, so in, cases, in, in some cases, these shows are so... Um, Hard to understand. No, they're hard to, it's hard to understand what they are and what drove them in their original time. And it isn't until you do them sometimes that you, you actually look at them up on their feet and go, oh, we should have done this that way, not this way. We should have cast well, this this well, way, not that way. Clearly, we, we started this, this section with a, a clip from Chicago. Clearly, there was something very right about Chicago. It was fair. Righter, perhaps, than any, anybody thought at the time? No, Walter always knew it was right because he said when he got off the bus, when he came to New York, Chicago was playing. It seemed like to me, when we first talked about it, that it was new, but that it had been, you know, 20 some years. And Walter said it's encores because it's like a vaudeville show. Each character comes forward in one, does their number. And that drove how it was shaped. The it, fact that Annie Ranking ended up only at the beginning as choreographer, and then as we went forward, and. Walter, we all said we should ask her to do Roxy, which we did. Anyway, but it did fall out of our stated mission, the, that title. It was... Uh, it got done. I mean, because it was the first title that was perhaps... It was newer, but it also did get done. It had a, rev a revival on the West Coast just prior that B.B. had been in, and it, it didn't need encores as desperately as Sweet Adeline did. But well, the politics of the time, the O.J. trial and the Melinda oh, brothers... it was a great choice for producing. It was perfect in terms of the topicality of it and how it had resonated. And it worked well as a concert because of that vaudeville aspect. Absolutely. But it was Walter who had the, the vision that he there was did, something right. He did and wanted desperately to do it. And then once we got into it, the score is brilliant. And the Ralph Burns orchestrations are brilliant. There were so many brilliant things in it, and it, it manifested itself. And we knew the night of the dress rehearsal, pfft, everything was over. The, the, the drive toward more production and more being a little fancier and knowing that Encores was now on Broadway and... Yeah, the potential to move something. People yeah, suspect I mean, that there's potential there's or that move. there's you know, I don't think we, we've never chosen a show thinking it was going to move. I never have never. anyway. Mm -hmm. And never. so far, <laughs> I've been right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the apple tree is now yeah. at the roundabout, but that's another not well, for Wonderful theater. Town. Wonderful, wonderful Town. Wonderful Town was before I was, ah. was... I was not the artistic director. Okay. Wonderful Town. But I don't think we ever have even really thought about that because the, the unique thing about Chicago is that it was written for a small band. So putting on my Broadway hat and remembering how Broadway producers all sit around saying, we need a smaller band. This show actually has a smaller band. I don't think anything that we do with a, you know, with a 30 piece orchestra is likely to move in anything remotely like the condition that we do it in. But is it, is it fair to say that if somebody were to walk into a production of Chicago in Australia or London or wherever, Barry Weisler, who is the producer who took it on, that what they would see on that stage is the essence of encores? It's the essence of encores. It's the cold frame. The set is pretty much, they have put their scripts down. Uh -huh. And there's a, more dance. The dancing got finished, that got begun at encores. But it's, it's the, yeah, it's pretty close. And did you find, Judith, that, that it became any kind of a curse? 
Yeah. Other than we talked about the, the expectation of, of moves, but there was a, was there some now new expectation? I think the curse came as much with the artistic teams that came in, because there's always that golden thing out there that you know maybe if what I do is really terrific, it'll move. Um, and so the, I, yeah, I think things changed. And and rights holders, the estates and rights holders, I, we've had issues before where they're worried that it will if they might. Uh, then not get their first-class production because it either goes really well or really badly, and that there's some kind of there's so much attention now on encores and what it presents that there are new pressures for the people performing, the directors, the choreographers, and the rights holders about their little babies. If they think there's some kind of future for it, what's this exposure to encores going to do? Mm -hmm. That's happened too. Is it fair to say that, that some of the more obscure titles have turned out to be the more exciting ones? I think of Pardon My English, for example, a, a Gershwin show which nobody knew. And, right. um, is that a fair statement? <laughs> you know, it's great when someone champions <laughs> these shows with great passion, and that was one of Rob's. Right. From the, really, from the minute I walked in, was something he really, really wanted to do. <clears throat> and it was a, Pardon My English was a funny show because there was a book that was written prior to the songs being written, that was the only existing book. And the show went through horrible machinations out of town in its original tryout and closed very quickly. And apparently the show that opened on Broadway had very little to do with the book that existed. And the, so we had no idea where the songs fit in because it was a book that was given to the Gershwins, <coughs> excuse me, so that they could write the songs. So although the score had been preserved, we had no idea really what it meant. And so and that it was, became it, David's project. That was a, that was a book, that was, that was a show where I must say there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of mortar added between those bricks um, by, by me, um, uh, and I had to make up the mortar um, as I went along. But it was such fun to work on, and that's I loved those shows. That's why I'd love, love to go back to Dubarry, knowing what mm -hmm. I know now, because I I, I think I would uh, I would know how to do it. But um, not only part of my English, but actually my fa the favorite encore is that. I've worked on was Strike Up the Band, which, in which I got a 150-page script, and nobody knew what, at what point in the process that script was. It may have been the first, the, first, um, the first draft. Just as in Pardon My English, I was given a script that had no songs in it, because it was the, script, it was the first draft of it. And so you could see where Herb Fields had written dialogue that Ira Gershwin took later and turned into the songs that ended up in the show. And so those shows, to me, are the real gold because nobody has seen them in, year, in decades. Strike Up the Band was, was a huge failure in 1927 or something. And so... And did, they did it again, so there were two... They, there were two, there's a, because it's, it's a satire. It, it was actually the show that caused George S. Kaufman to say satire is what closes on Saturday night. Um, and... Uh, he wrote a version of this satire about a war with Switzerland, and the version he wrote was about cheese, and then there was a second version that was about chocolate, and we did the cheese version, <laughs> because it's, cheese is funnier than chocolate, automatically. <laughs> and so um, I was up to my ears in cheese, but it was one of the most joyful things I've ever done. was also the show where I added a lot of mortar to that show as well. Um, and, um, but 
fortunately, uh, Ann Kaufman, George S. Kaufman's <laughs> daughter, is still with us, and she absolutely hated one of the jokes that I added. And she, My favorite. And she came up to me at dress rehearsal, and she said, you know, you must take that joke out. I didn't know her. She's a, she's, it's, it's like meeting one of those great crusty aunts from Edith Wharton, you know. <laughs> and she's, she was there at the beginning. She was there to see it. And, um, but she hated this joke that I had written. Because I had taken out some material, I had to create something to make a bridge to a song or something. So I added this joke, and she said, address rehearsal, you must take that joke out. And I said, no, it's a very good joke. She said, my father would never allow that joke. And I said, well, I'll make a deal with you. If it gets a laugh at dress rehearsal, we'll take it out. She said, OK, I'll, I'll buy that. And so, <laughs> and so dress rehearsal came. If it doesn't get a laugh, I'll take, I'll take, doesn't get a laugh, I'll take it out. And so dress rehearsal comes, big laugh. So I see her peer at me over the crowd. you know. And she said, all, all right. But we, had, we cut the same deal every night thereafter until it closed. And it got a laugh every night. And at the gala, there was, there was a big gala dinner. And there I was sitting with my wife and my mother at the, at the table. The door opens. Ann Kaufman comes in on someone's arm. She sees me, throws up her chin, and gives me the finger. And so <laughs> and we've been great friends ever since. <laughs> That's an enlightened rights holder. Eighty-two-year-old, eighty-two-year-old woman giving you the finger at a gala. That's what I call life in New York. <laughs> How important uh, has the success of spe each specific show been to the director who who does it? Because obviously, the, the task of a director, you know, if it is Summerstock with the A team, um, you know, they have they have a week and a half to to put it up. But uh, well, you could say careers have been <laughs> semi-launched at least. I mean, Kathleen worked with her brother Robbie for years as an assistant choreographer and a dancer and stuff, and we really gave her a chance to move out of, well, stay with choreography, but direct as well, and that was a big stretch for her at the time, and she took advantage of it. You know, the directors that come in to do encores are putting their life on the line. It's, the rehearsal period is too short. But it's also, it is, it is a directorial triumph, really. It is a test of a director, and there are very few who can do it. Mm -hmm. Because the great thing about that rehearsal process is you are getting the most talented people you can find into a room, and you can't have a sec you don't have a second chance. You can't second guess anything. You're, you're, you have to go on your instincts, and your instincts have to be right. And so that's the fun. And so those people are few and far between. And they the all are grateful for the training. The odd, yes. uh, Rob Ashford sometime recently said, it's the on-course training. That's why I can do what I do. It's the on-course training. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you can survive it and survive successfully, it's a great credit to have. Did, did Rob Ashford choreograph his first show at Encores? Or had Probably. he been? Probably. He'd been assisting Kathleen a lot and then... I'd have to check that. I would too. But I would think that, that would put a burden on you as current artistic director, Jack, to figure out who, I mean, clearly it, there are people It's who a very done. interesting challenge, and I think one of the things that I had to learn is um, because it feels like summer stock with the A-team and, you know, just putting on a show in a barn, one's instinct, or at least my instinct, is to use lots of young, new, fresh talent. But when it comes to directors and choreographers, it's actually not a good way for them to debut themselves, and it's pressure. not good for encores either. The pressure here is mainly one of getting someone who's experienced and understands what the technical problems of getting through a rehearsal period like this are, can lay them out during a pre-production, you know, a series of pre-production sessions with a stage manager and a music director and a choreographer, and you have to be ready to teach the show on Monday morning. You can't do what you do on Broadway, which is to build a moment, look at it three or four different ways, 
play with it, come back to it the next day. We do everything once. Whatever we stage on Monday, we don't even look at again usually until Friday. So um, experience is hugely important, and, and particularly in addition to you know talent and gifts and imagination, just organizational experience. Yeah, really. I saw that. I saw that. It's a very simple thing, but I saw a great example of that once when we did a show which will remain nameless, <laughs> not my favorite show. But a director was hired who had never done an encore before. And I had done a bunch of them at that point. And it was a young director, very ambitious director. And um, he decided that he was not going to read through the script on Monday morning. He said, we don't need to read through the script. And that's the first thing we do. Is on Monday, everybody sits down, and we just read through, whether we sing or not. We, we sometimes skip the songs, but that's the only time you get until Friday to know what the shape of the show is and wh wh whether there are jokes that need to be cut or lines that, or scenes that need to be trimmed. And just not doing that was a fatal mistake because nobody had heard the show. So he was going in and rehearsing scenes, but nobody knew where it fell or what the show felt like. And so it's little things like that, but you need to know that. He didn't believe me and the show went wrong. Have, have shows ever been chosen for performers? You mentioned Nathan Lane and Dore Me. Which came first? Or what, what, what? I don't know how that ha I wasn't in on those discussions. I've uh, done it once, which was Kristen Chenoweth and the Apple Tree. I basically said to Jay Bender, if Kristen Chenoweth wants to do the Apple Tree, let's do the Apple Tree. If she doesn't, let's do some other show. And she wanted it within 24 actually, it was hours. Jamie Hammerstein, who was an early member of the advisory yeah. committee, I remember saying that yeah. you know, don't, don't lose don't, sight of yeah, saying to, to a performer, is there a show that you've always hankered yeah, we have, for? I doing? haven't had success do, doing that, but I have, in this one case, had success saying, I think this show is a vehicle for that kind of star. It's crazy to do it without that kind of star. You'd be better off doing some other show. Well, we, so, we had talked for well, years about doing Can Can and, right. and always thinking Patty. Oh, and that's another always example, thinking Patty. Patty. Jay said to me one summer, if we can get Patty LaPone to do Can Can, we should do Can Can. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I, I remember going back to Betty and Adolph. I have to say, Ted, that, you know, for me, this was such a dream of mine to be able to do this. And I remember going to the first orchestra rehearsal with the cast of Fiorello and thinking to myself, my God, we're spending all this money just so I can hear this. I mean, I, was, I, 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 felt, I felt terrible about it, but I was loving every minute of it. Yeah. And when Betty, and, and, and having those people, many of whom are no longer with us, like Betty and Adolph, stand in the aisle at the final rehearsal of Do Re Mi and turn to me and say, Dakin, this second act never worked. It was <laughs> terrible. But because of what David's done and Nathan, it plays. Mm -hmm. And they were just tearful about that. That they, Here was a show on stage in front of them that they thought they would never see again in their lifetime. And they had a wonderful one experience. Of the, one of the secrets of that show, though, was, was Nathan doing what Bert Lahr used to do in 1938 in the Phil Silvers, which was that when, while in that week, he was finding better ways to, do, to, to, to say things, just little, little things. Yeah. And so he was adjusting it to himself. And it was perfect for that. It was perfectly right for that, because it was written for Phil Silvers. And he was in those boots. And so the responsibility was on his shoulders to make that show yeah, carry. Totally. And he did it. He took it on his shoulders, and he, he adjusted it and massaged it, and it was gorgeous to watch. If we hadn't had Nathan, we would never have done that show. Nobody tells me what to do, see? Yeah. I'm going to flatten you out like a steamboat. Yeah. And slip you out of somebody's door. Yeah. And remember, Alex Kane, Boo 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 Boo
Codgers, see your respect, and those other Codgers. So many shows are four stars. That's part of what the musical theater in America is and has always been. And you must recognize when you got one of those and make sure you don't do it without a star. We sometimes made that mistake. But is, is also, is Do Re Mi the, the kind of show about which one could say it, it was unique, it uniquely benefited from yes. being cut down and done in, in encores? Yes, there's no doubt about that. Because it really was not a, not a good book at all, and that's why Adolf said, don't do it. You know, Look at how many of them turned out now. Chicago, that's Chicago. The cut-down version of Chicago is Chicago. Promises, promises. Doc Simon came back and did his own adaptation of it, and he cut all, he said, why did I overwrite this? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's been a revelation, I think. Because a lot of, what we forget is that musicals were three hours long yeah. in those right. days. They were Attention spans were different. Huge. But I think one of the things we've done well, and largely a credit to David, is we, we've cut them. We've never tried to fix them. Mm -hmm. We don't try to change the spirit of them or update the spirit of them in any way. And I think, generally speaking, the fixed musicals that I've seen, where someone says, oh, I know what On a Clear Day You Can See Forever really should be, actually aren't as good as the originals, even if the originals have flaws in them. And somehow by trimming them and trying not to leave any of our own fingerprints on them, they play better. But these They're, books failed often because of those books. Yeah. And, and my job, I th when I'm on one of these is, is to g give people the essence of the show, the feeling that they have seen what the, what the show was, uh, was meant to be, but with the accent, certainly, on the sound. And so I have, this, I have a rule that I came up with very early on in the process, which I call the Encores Rule, which is that no scene after the first scene should be longer than two pages. Because it, it has to go to the song. It's not about the, song, the book. Two pages in the It's not about book. So the third show this season is a is an assemblage of uh, of material from reviews in in the past. So I use that as my final question. And I do it to you, Jack, which is the future of encores. What's the future of encores? Oh, the future of encores is rosy, Ted. <laughs> <laughs> do I need to say more than that? <laughs> um, you know, I think encores has gone through a period where we were obscure and didn't know quite what we were doing. We were popular, then we were sort of impossible to get a ticket to once Chicago happened. And then we uh, settled into a pattern of doing what we do. And a couple of years ago, I began to feel as the current artistic director that that pattern, while we were still producing good results, wasn't, uh, wasn't keeping us as sexy as if we began to grow a little bit. And you know, no institution stays young and, and impassioned and at full uh, bore interest to the audience for 14 years without shifting and trying to refine itself. I don't see us doing anything very dramatically different. I mean, this year, because it's the 100th anniversary of the first Ziegfeld Follies, I wanted to do a season that was sort of about follies, about reviews. And we've never done, um, we've never done uh, a review except in its entirety except for the Ziegfeld Follies of 1936, and I didn't really want to do that again. We've already done that kind of thing. And this just seemed to be a way of celebrating the best of the review material. It's wonderful material written by Irving Berlin and Cole Porter and the Gershwins and Rogers and Hart and Harold Arlen and whoever, um, all the way from the Ziegfeld, early Ziegfeld Follies to New Faces of 52 and Two on the Isle and the last reviews before the form basically moved to television. Um, I don't think that we're going to keep inventing shows. If another idea like that came up, I, if this one works as well as I hope and think it's going to work, we wouldn't be afraid to do it. But I, I suspect we're going to we're going to uh, 
use this as kind of a, a way of reviving ourselves and then you know, move on to whatever is next. David, you want to have at that the future, future? The future of Encores? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it includes a lot of David Ives, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I'm good. And this is as much Rob Fisher as I can get my hands on. <laughs> Rob, Rob is, the, is the person to ask. Wow. Um, I do think it needs a, a shaking, and this might be the shaking it needs, because there's so much momentum in that evolution toward more production, more and more doing shows, and it's it's not driven by a single person. It is a momentum of its own. And if there's something that can at least jar that momentum so it do, it's not ruling the joint. But I think, you know, three shows a season, three shows that have some interest and don't get done, I think there's still a hunger. I th the hunger may be slightly different than the hunger was in 1994. Um, maybe because lots of people are doing a one-off concert version of a musical as a benefit. Mm -hmm. There are several every year. Some of those are titles we might have done. Um, some of them are turning into movies. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting how much more is out there. Uh, people in other towns have, have created their own versions of encores, but even in the city, there's more access to old musicals. Mm -hmm. And producers are looking at anything to revive so that it's, uh, there's competition for the for those old boxes of stuff now. All right, well, on that note, thank you. Thank you one and all for, for being here. Um, thank you for joining us. These programs are brought to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York with our partners at CUNY TV. On behalf of the American Theatre Wing, thank you for joining us on another edition of Working in the Theatre. <laughs>